How many of you are like a type A, hyper-organized, ducks in a row, everything has its place sort of person? You can raise your hand if you're one of those types of people. It's okay. You can be honest. This is church. I'm one of those people. In fact, I brought uh, a little prop along for you today. This is my weekly schedule. You can't read it, but you can see that it's color-coded. I, uh, I plan out every moment of my week, something to do every hour. And if you're wondering if uh, I'm secretly a robot and uh, I have no spontaneity in my life whatsoever, uh, you're wrong. Actually, I have planned in my spontaneity uh, right there on Sunday and there on Friday and there on Tuesday. Seriously, I do plan every hour of my week. And if I work according to my schedule, I work about 60 hours every week. I know, shocker, I work more than Sundays. But I do that for a very specific reason. Not just because I'm a type A, hyper-organized, everything-in-its-spot sort of personality. It's because I need it. Because if I don't schedule things, I have no direction, and I don't do the most important things. If you were to actually look at my schedule, you would see a couple slots every day for what I call slush time. Slush time are basically hours where I plan nothing so that if you need me at a moment's notice, I can be your pastor. If you were to send me a text, I can set up an appointment that day so that we can sit down and talk. Or if you just need to call me, I can pick up the phone and have 20 minutes to chat. Or if you just show up at the ministry center and you happen to be walking past my office, I actually have time to talk with you. Because before I am a content creator and a producer of Christian materials and an event planner, I am your pastor. And I want to be your pastor before any of those things. I want to be the one who gives you God's word in those moments when you need it, when life is falling apart, when you don't know the answer. I want to be that pastor for you. And I know that if I don't schedule that time, It'd be easy to bury myself in desk work. I could write more. I could plan more. I could spend more time making all of our graphics look awesome. And I would like that, because that's my personality. But I need that direction to do the right things at the right time. Maybe you've realized how much you need direction in your everyday life. Maybe you've been walking around your house looking at the things that need to get done. You see about three or four things. You start doing one of those things, but then you realize that that other task needs to get done first. So you start doing that other task, but then you realize that a third task also needs to be done, but you're not going to have time to do it if you do this task. So you keep working on this task, but then you feel bad about it, so you end up sitting on the couch eating ice cream. Has that ever happened to you? I'm the only one? Oh, sorry. Uh, maybe you, you've noticed this with your kids. If you don't give kids direction, they often end up wasting their energy, wasting their time, and generally annoying people. Right? They need direction. They need, uh, go do this. This is what you need to do next. Maybe you've seen it as an adult. You're in your midlife crisis, so to speak. You're looking back at your life, and you're like, wow, I haven't really done that much over the last couple decades. And if I look at the trajectory of my life, I, I don't see it really changing that much. You know, every single person needs direction in their life. Human beings are created this way. We're creations, right? God made us to fit into this world in which we were supposed to play a role. But because of sin, we've 
lost that direction. And maybe it's no more obvious than with the way church has gone for the last 50 years or so in the Western world. If you look at the history of the church, the church has made more changes in the last 50 to 80 years than it has at any time in its history. And some of those changes are good. Some of those changes I don't think are so good. But I'm not here to argue about the changes. I'm here to let you know that that many changes, that many concessions to culture has started to give the church a reputation. That the church is a place that will adjust to you. You be whoever you want to be and church will fit in to your life. But that's not how Jesus talked. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. And as we look at Luke chapter 9 for our next Sunday of the Give It Up sermon series, we see Jesus' very clear directives to us as his creation, as his redeemed children. He's going to show us four things that we cannot be if we're going to be followers of him. And they're going to make us uncomfortable. You'll hear them and, and you won't want to do them right away. But we need that kind of direction. Will it save the church from the decline that it's experienced over 50 years? I don't know. I suppose in the end it doesn't much matter. Jesus is still the Lord of the church. But as we live our individual Christian lives and community as our congregation, these words definitely matter. So dig in on these four things today, and hopefully we'll all walk away with a little bit better direction for our life from God. Um, here's the text. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent men messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he, is the, then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus, rep Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. So the text starts with kind of an interesting little phrase. Um, if you're following along in the Bible app or you have a Bible with you, if you look at verse 951, You'll see a verse that seems like somewhat of a throwaway verse, but is actually very significant. Uh, the verse says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And there are commentators, in fact a couple, who see this as kind of the hinge point in the whole gospel of Luke. Like up to this point, through chapter 9, Jesus has been doing his normal thing, preaching and teaching and doing miracles. But now, at verse 951, he sets his face towards Jerusalem to go die because he knows that's what he came for, and this is the start of that path. And that's why it's really good for us as Christians to examine this text, because that's where we're going in Lent. 
We're going to the cross to see Jesus die, and so we follow him as he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. Now, the first thing that happens on his journey is he sends some messengers out into a Samaritan village that they're going to walk through in order to prepare a place for him. Uh, but the Samaritans reject those messengers, and they come back, and James and John, hearing this happen, they, well, they say, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven? I mean, they rejected you. But Jesus rebukes them, right? Now, James and John's request maybe seems kind of out of the blue to you as you read the text. Like, wow, that seems like a, a huge overreaction. But James and John were actually thinking back to the story from 2 Kings 1. I'm guessing not many of you have read 2 Kings 1 lately, so let me give you the Cliff Notes version. In 2 Kings 1, King Ahaziah, who was an evil king of Israel at the time, was sending messengers to worship a false god named Baal Zabub. And Elijah, who was the prophet at the time, caught them and called down fire from God to destroy them because they were going to worship a false god. And he actually does it twice in the text to two different sets of messengers. And so James and John are probably thinking, well, these people rejected Jesus and Jesus is God. And, and back in 2 Kings 1, they were rejecting God and Elijah called down fire. So why can't we just call down fire. But Jesus doesn't let them, right? And there are two clues to why he doesn't let them in the text. The first of those is this little phrase, when James and John saw this. See, James and John, if they had not been the messengers, would have just heard the report, but the fact is James and John were those messengers. They went into that Samaritan village to try to find a place for Jesus, and they were rejected by that village. And so they came back and then asked Jesus, not, Jesus, can you bring the fire down on these people, but Jesus, can we bring the fire down on these people? And isn't that the way that our life goes sometimes? We live in a world that gives us negative feedback about our Christian faith, right? Whether it's a personal attack or just a general attack on Christianity, we hear constantly that what we're doing is not good, that we should be rejected, that we should be excluded, right? And it's very easy for us to want to react exactly like James and John, to bring down the fire. Now, I'm, I'm guessing if you've been rejected recently, the majority of you haven't actually prayed to God to bring down fire on anybody, but you've probably done something in the same vein. Like maybe a, a perfectly worded Facebook reply to that thing that you saw posted that's totally going to destroy that person's argument so that they feel really foolish. Maybe you were scrolling through YouTube and on that side, the up next side of the screen, you see a video that says, Christian and atheist debate, atheist gets demolished. So you click on it because you want to see the fire come down on that guy. Maybe you see unchristian behavior in the world around you and you criticize it, you gossip about it, you tear down other people instead of going to them and, and calling them to repentance and forgiving them because you want to see the fire. That was James and John's problem and it tends to be ours too. As Christians in the world, we tend to be vindictive. And actually, it doesn't come from a bad place. Like, we love Jesus, and we want to see Jesus protected, and so we want to stand up for him when he is bad-mouthed or when he's rejected, but 
But what Jesus says here to James and John and what he says to us as well is our first fill in the blank for today, that the first thing you cannot be if you're going to be a Christian is vindictive. It's not your job to bring down the fire. In fact, if you're taking notes, that's the next fill in the blank. It's God's business to bring the fire. The book of Romans says that God says, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not your job to get revenge. God will bring the fire. Just like he did with Elijah and Ahaziah, right? Elijah was bringing down the fire because God gave him the ability to, and it was God's name that was being disrespected and rejected. God says the same thing will happen at the end of the world, that the whole world will be destroyed with fire because everything on it is evil except for those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who believe that he is their savior. It's God's business to bring the fire, to right all the wrongs, to punish the evil. But maybe more importantly than that, and especially with this situation here with James and John, the fire comes most obviously on Jesus. See, Jesus has just resolutely set out for Jerusalem because he knows that the punishment that every single person deserved was being reserved for him. And that as he hung on the cross, he was going to get the complete full wrath of God on his shoulders. And so instead of bringing that punishment against those Samaritans who still had the chance to repent and believe the good news that he was going to die for them, he said, don't bring the fire on them, bring it on me. And that changes our perspective, doesn't it? Like once you realize that whether you're a believer or not, you are no more worthy of Jesus' love than anyone else. That the person who's been a lifelong Christian, the person who's been a Christian for one week, and the people who are not Christians, they are all sinful, evil, born in sin, conceived in that sinful nature, deserving of God's wrath and punishment both now and in eternity. But because the fire of God came on Jesus, every one of them is forgiven. It leads you to not be vindictive, doesn't it? When you realize that every other person sitting here and out there is just as much in need of a Savior as you are, to say, it's not my job to bring revenge on you because I deserve just as much revenge from God. But the beauty that I get to give to you is the message that your sins are forgiven, that you can believe that the fire came down on Jesus, that you can be free from the punishment of God, you can be free from the guilt and shame that accompany your sin. That's why a follower of Jesus cannot be vindictive. So, first, we cannot be vindictive. But the second thing that Jesus tells us that we cannot be, let me get this up here for you, is idealistic. The next uh, interaction that happens in the text is a man comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus gives a, a somewhat enigmatic reply, doesn't he? He says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, the first thing to realize is that Jesus is not rejecting this man who offers to follow him. I mean, for all we know, the text doesn't tell us, this man might have actually followed Jesus wherever he went for the rest of his life. Um, but what Jesus is doing for this man is letting him know the reality of the situation. He's diagnosing this man's idealism. It turns out that people who say things like, I'll go with you wherever you go, 
usually think the journey is going to be pretty good. If a lieutenant sends his men into battle where they might die, they don't say, I'm going to go wherever you tell me to go. They say, yes, sir. They know they have to go that way, even though it may not be good in the end for them. And Jesus is doing the same thing for this man. He's comparing his life and the life that you would be connected to if you were to be a follower of him to the picture of foxes and birds. He says foxes have dens, birds have nests, places where they can rest and be safe and secure. But the Son of Man, which is the name that Jesus used to describe himself, he has no place to lay his head. Now, is Jesus saying that a follower of him has to be homeless? Well, no. But he is being straight with you about what might happen if you're going to be a follower of him. If I can be as blunt as Jesus is in our own language today, if you think that being a Christian is going to give you an easy, comfortable life, you're wrong. If that's what you're hoping out of this congregation and about the message of the Bible, you should probably leave because that's not what Christianity offers you. Now, don't get me wrong. Christianity and belief in Jesus as your Savior offers immense eternal benefits and the peace that goes beyond understanding in this life. But nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever guarantee you a comfortable, easy life as a Christian this side of heaven. He says that you will be like him, sometimes without a place of safety and security, like a wanderer, a sojourner, a foreigner, he describes you in other places in the Bible. Now, maybe you haven't been coming here for very long. Maybe you're new here, first time at Cross of Life, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that sounds awful. I thought you were supposed to convince me to be a Christian. And if that's what you're thinking, I get it. Like, it doesn't sound very good on the surface. But I want you to think of the alternative. See, a life without Jesus, it may be good, it may be comfortable, it may offer you some pleasure for the moment, but the Bible says at the end of your life, you're going to be judged on whether you are good or evil whether you have kept God's law perfectly or whether you have failed in any way. And as you look at every one of your lives, you know you have not been perfect in every way. But faith in Jesus means that you get the righteousness, the perfection that God has earned through Jesus, so that at that last day, whether it's the end of the world or the end of your life, God will see you as perfect. And so maybe a little bit of suffering for the 70 or 80 or 90 years you live here is worth it. Because the alternative is, is far worse. See, Jesus wants you to remember that even though he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, eventually he did lay down his head. Well, actually, the, the men who buried his body did. They laid it down in the tomb after he died the death you deserved so that you wouldn't have to die eternally. And if you trust that, yeah, it might mean that the world will reject you, that the world will think of you as second rate, but it will also mean that you have a hope that no one can take away from you. So as a Christian, you can't be idealistic. You can't think that Christianity is going to be the life of victory all the time. But it will be the eternal life of victory because of what Jesus suffered. And so if you're taking notes with us, the next fill in the blank is that when you suffer, remember that he suffered. 
And that because of that suffering, you no longer have to suffer forever. But you know, I want to take this a step further for you. You know, if you look at the lives of people who aren't Christians, are their lives really that much better? Do they really have peace? Are they really satisfied? Do they really have everything they need? Do they have all the acknowledgments, all the self-worth that you could possibly want? No. In fact, the Christian life is not all that different from the unbelieving life. But what the Christian has is a realistic worldview that says, yeah, things are bad and that's not okay. Thank God for Jesus. Every other worldview, whether an actual organized religion or just atheism or agnosticism, says the same two things. They say evil is either something you should detach from or it's something you should get revenge on. But Christianity is the only religion that says, no, it's evil, but God's going to take care of it. And so I can let it go. I can forgive it. And I can tell people that that forgiveness is for them as well. And it might not be comfortable, but it's realistic. So, the Christian cannot be vindictive, idealistic, or the third point, if you're taking notes with us, worldly focused. Uh, the next interaction that Jesus has is he's walking down the road and he sees a man and calls to him and says, follow me. But the man says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay, so what's happening here? First, a couple things to understand about this guy who uh, gets called by Jesus. First of all, the thing that he says he's going to do is a monumental thing. Um, I just recently went to the funeral of my grandma, and I loved my grandma very much, but I held it together pretty well. But I know that when my dad dies, I will lose it. Because I don't think there's any human who's had more an effect on me as a person than my dad. And I know not all of you have had really good relationships with your fathers, um, part of that is part of the sexual revolution in our modern culture. Um, and there definitely were some situations of bad fatherly, um, uh, bad fatherly uh, treatment of children and of, of spouses in that time, but it was far less prevalent like it is today. To lose your father in, in that culture was a huge thing. And so this man is not asking Jesus for a small request. He's actually doing something kind of big for his life. Um, the second thing to understand about this man is it's not that this guy doesn't want to follow Jesus either, right? He's not making an excuse. He says, Lord, he acknowledges him for who he is, and then says, first let me go do this, which implies that what he's going to do after that is follow Jesus, right? So why does Jesus give this kind of harsh reply, let the dead bury their own dead? Well, you have to understand that Jesus is using the word dead in two different ways. There are two ways to understand the word dead from the Bible. That is physically dead, right? As in your body stops functioning, your heart stops beating. But there's also spiritually dead, what the Bible would call a life without Jesus, right? And so what Jesus is saying is let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. In other words, he's saying let those people who only have this life to live for worry about the things of this life. If they're not looking forward to a life that comes after, let them take the time to deal with the things this side of heaven. But you follow me. 
In other words, Jesus is saying that if you believe there is an eternal life and that people go there depending on whether they believe Jesus' promise or not, then the number one thing you should be concerned with in your life is whether people believe that promise or not. It's not that you shouldn't attend funerals. It's not that you shouldn't take care of the things that are in your life, but they all have to come second to the message of the gospel. Even something as monumental as your relationship with a parent or a loved one, it all has to come second to what Jesus is talking about and doing. If you're taking notes, that's our next fill in the blank. Faith comes first. Let me try to give you a couple practical examples of how this works. Because I think we can all sort of theoretically put in our minds the idea that faith comes first, but when it actually hits the ground, it gets a little bit harder. I'll give you an example from my own life and then one I think applies to you. Um, As a pastor, I get to talk to people who come to our congregation or, or interact with us and try to help them understand who Jesus is and what he means for their life. So I'll often get to sit down with them, usually over coffee, and just chat about what life is like for them. What things are they struggling with? What things are they thinking about? And almost inevitably with those people, I run into some pretty crazy situations. People have some messed up lives. I bet many of those of you who came to faith later in life would say the same thing about your life before Christianity. And some of you, I would actually say probably all of you, would say it's still true now. But it would be very tempting for me, as I sit across the table from, let's just say, a hypothetical guy who has a bad habit of on the weekends getting drunk and sleeping with whoever he wants to sleep with, it would be hard for me, or it'd be easy for me, to want to fix that guy, right? To say, that's not God's plan for sexuality. That's not God's plan for using alcohol. You should definitely fix that. But I don't do that. In fact, I usually sit and nod and maybe laugh at it with them, because I'm concerned with something far more pivotal in their life. I'm concerned with their relationship with Jesus. And I know that none of those things that are evil in their life are going to change until they know who Jesus is and the grace that he has offered them. And so I bypass a lot of behavioral problems when I deal with people just to get them the gospel, because I know that's what changes lives. If you think about your own life and how you value things in your life, You should compare it to Abram, the the guy we read about earlier in the service. If you don't know, Abram was called by God to make this huge trek all the way from Haran to Canaan, which was about a thousand kilometers by foot. And he was supposed to do that, leaving his family, his father's household, and his people, and go there with his family to start a whole new life. Because of modern travel, we don't even have like a mathematical equivalent to how far of a journey that would be for us. To get on a plane and fly for literally months is ridiculous. But that's what Abraham was called to do. I mean, think of that. If God came to your door this afternoon and said, all right, I need you to leave Canada and leave all your friends here and uh, be away from your family and I need you to do that right now and also you're not going to be able to communicate with them and you're never coming back. Would you go? Or would you start thinking about all the worldly things that that's going to affect? What about my house, my car, my investments, my family, my relationships, my job? What am I going to do? Well, Abraham stepped out in faith in God and went where God called him to go. And that's an amazing feat of God's work in Abraham's life. But the truth is, he wouldn't have done it without that help from God. See, it's easy for us to focus on the things of this world 
instead of the spiritual things that God offers us every day. It's easier to worry about our cash flow than God's promises. It's easier to worry about your kids turning out the way you want them to turn out instead of how God wants them to turn out. It's easier to keep score in marriage than to forgive. It's easier to focus on all those worldly things instead of what God says is spiritually important. You know, we'd be no better, no better than Abram, uh, if we would have, if God would show up to us. We'd be no more worthy of God's call and no more willing to take it, except that God worked faith in Abram's heart and he continues to work faith in our hearts. That's why many of you have given up things to be Christian. You've given up relationships with people. You've given up situations in life that maybe earned you more money or gave you more free time because you wanted to stay connected to this congregation. That's amazing. Well, why did that happen? Because of exactly what Jesus says to this man whom he calls to follow him, right? Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus is doing something that's actually very common throughout the scriptures. You know it as the preaching of law and gospel. For those of you who don't know those two terms, the Bible is almost always, actually it is always, saying two things. It's saying, you're not good enough, but Jesus is. That's the law and the gospel. And Jesus is doing the same thing with this man. Let the dead bury their own dead. Hey you, you're too focused on on earthly things. But you go proclaim the kingdom of God. You're not good enough, but I am, so go proclaim it. See, being a Christian is being willing to acknowledge that I am not good enough. I can't trust God's promises by myself. I look at what he calls me to be and to do in my life, and I say, ooh, maybe if I have time. But then Jesus says, yeah, I know, you're not good enough, but I am. And so he calls you out immediately into service into his kingdom. And if you look at your life and wonder, man, I don't know if I can, I can do that. I don't know if I have the skills. I don't know if I have the words. I don't have the education. If someone asks me a question that I don't know the answer to, what am I going to say? Jesus isn't concerned with that. The only qualification he needs for a missionary is that they realize they're not good enough and that Jesus is. And so continue to hear this law and gospel preached from this pulpit and from your daily devotions and from your conversations with other Christians, because that's what's going to actually change your life, to trust Jesus more. So, the Christian cannot be vindictive, idealistic, worldly focused, and the last, if you're taking notes with us, is sluggish. The last person Jesus comes into contact with says this, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replies, No one who puts the hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Okay, so what's going on here? Um, First, the the statement that this person makes seems almost identical to the person before them, right? Um, But Jesus' answer gives us a clue into what this person is actually thinking about. And Jesus uses the picture of plowing a field to uh, illustrate his point. You have to understand, now plows were driven by hand, pulled by oxen, right? So you would walk up to the plow, grab the handles, and then the oxen would pull, and you would drive it from there. Uh, But Jesus says, if you're going to be a person who puts your hands to the plow and looks back, you are not fit for service in the kingdom of God. 
He's actually kind of making a joke here, like to put into your mind the imagination of somebody who walks up to the plow, puts their hands on it, and immediately starts looking backwards, not looking at all where they're going. What he wants you to understand is that as soon as he preaches law and gospel to you, you are called into his service. But if you're going to put your hand to the plow of work in his kingdom and keep looking back, then you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. You know, it's a a temptation of Christians to say, I'll do that later. I'll get into my Bible whenever. I'll make sure that I come to church every Sunday, at least when it's convenient. You know, when life gets a little less crazy, then I'll get myself into a Bible study. Work is hectic right now. I don't have time for a personal devotional life. Jesus says, no, you can't. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to be a follower right now. Your hands are on the plow. There's no reason for you to look back. The same is true with our church. God has called us with the gospel to serve the world with the message of that gospel. And we are not going to sit on it. We're not just going to play church here in this room, continue to speak the word of God to each other, and then walk out and live as though we've never heard any of those words at all. No, we're going to push forward and plow the field with Jesus. That's why we have a 10-year vision, and why that 10-year vision includes a proven process. Maybe you don't remember that because you've been focusing on the 10-year part and the three-year part and the target market and those sorts of things, but embedded in our vision are three words that we hope define the way that we plow forward with Jesus in service in the kingdom. If you're taking notes with us, that's the next three fill in the blanks. Our proven process as a congregation is to learn, live, and lead. See, everything that we do as a congregation starts by hearing the word and learning it. It's not enough just to sit in the chairs and listen. No, we have to intake that knowledge. To play with it in our mind, to understand it, to to let it infiltrate into the worldview that we have about everything else that happens in our world. And that's going to happen by being in worship every week. It's going to happen by being in a Bible study, of which we have two large group Bible studies right now on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, which you can make it to. That comes from having a personal devotional life where you are in your Bible every day. And if I sound like I'm being a little bit strict about that, it's because Jesus is. No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. God has called you by his law and gospel out of sin, out of darkness, into his wonderful light. And now he says, learn. And as you learn, you're going to start to live. As you hear those words of God again and again, they're going to flow out from your mouth and they're going to move your hands to be serving other people. They're going to lead you to speak differently, to act differently, to value different things, to prioritize different things, to spend your money different ways. And then as you start to get used to living that way, then you'll lead. You become the person that people come to, or maybe in some cases, the person who seeks those who are struggling out to ask them, can I pray for you? Can I work with you? Can I share scripture with you? You can maybe be ahead of one of our camps or our programs as a congregation that allows people to hear the gospel. You can be a leader of one of our small groups or a teacher in our Sunday school all sorts of ways that you can lead in this congregation. But it all starts with learning and living. You know, none of this is 
particularly comfortable. It'd be way more comfortable just to be vindictive. When people say things that are evil about us, to fire back whatever feels right in the moment. It feels uncomfortable to hold back, doesn't it? In the same way, it can be uncomfortable to be a Christian and suffer regularly. To be like a fox without a den or a bird without a nest. And it can be uncomfortable to stop focusing on the things of this world. The things that do make you happy sometimes, this side of heaven. To focus on the more important spiritual things. And it could be uncomfortable to have to change your schedule to spend more time with God so that you can learn and live and lead. But as we have been preaching now for a couple weeks and will continue to preach until Jesus' resurrection is celebrated on Easter Sunday, being a Christian sometimes requires us to simplify, to focus on the things that really matter, to give up our comfort for the sake of being a follower of Jesus. And so if you're taking notes with us, that's our last fill in the blank. The big idea for today, give up your comfort and rest in Jesus' comfort. As a congregation, that might mean that things are going to be hard sometimes, that we won't always get along, that things won't always work out the way we wish they would, but that's okay because we're following Jesus. And Jesus has resolutely set his face to go to the cross to forgive our sins, to promise us heaven, and to give us a resurrection from the dead at the end of the world. I pray that this congregation gets a little bit more uncomfortable so that it rests more in the comfort that Jesus offers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us uncomfortable. Put us in situations that follow your will rather than our will. Give us the chance to serve our neighbor with our words and our actions, even if it means uh, an uncomfortable situation for us. Teach us your words so that we can learn it. Give us good works prepared in advance for us to do so we can live them. And then give us people in our life to lead back to that gospel which brought us to you in the first place. In your name we ask it, Jesus. Amen.